Good morning, Midland Free. My name is Pastor Jeremy, in case you forgot. That's who I am. I've been gone for a couple weeks, but I'm delighted to see you again. I hope you're happy to see me. Uh, oh, okay. No, I'm not asking for that. I'm just saying. Um, it's been a good couple of weeks. It's not been anywhere near vacation, but it's been good. God is growing me. The first week, if you were a part of it, we had an evangelism seminar on a Friday evening. That was planned long in advance, and Pastor David uh, covered that Sunday morning for me. And then uh, the following week, as some of you probably, and by the way, if you're interested in that, uh, you're welcome to check that out whenever we get it up online. We always put the teaching seminars under our, um, one of our resource tabs on, on our internet page. And so that's available for you. It was a great time of coming together, and we did some role play and stories and equipping and other things. So uh, thanks for those who came out. And if you didn't get to, feel free to check it out online. But uh, last week I was with my dad, and I've shared uh, some of that, well, the week before that, I, with you all. Uh, basically, my dad's health is failing. And he's on hospice. He was put on hospice around Christmas. So uh, Chuck was gracious enough to make it possible for me to uh, go down to Missouri for a little bit, say goodbye to him, spend some time with him, and uh, encourage my mom too. So thank you for your prayers in that regard. And uh, I, I feel good. Like I feel like uh, God is blessing that situation. My father is a Christian. Uh, and his faith is still strong, even though everything else, including his mind, is completely uh, gone. Uh, but we are, uh, I'm feeling the Lord using that to push me closer to him and his fatherhood and uh, just to rely on his strength for that. So uh, thank you for your prayers and encouragement. I also want to remind you of one other event. I think they said something about it probably in the announcements earlier today, but uh, just as a way of a reminder, the fight night that we have coming up, um, that is not a mixed martial arts thing or anything like that. That has to do with your marriage, and uh, what it's designed to do is not um, increase conflict, but instead to manage conflict, because to be honest, we all have conflict, and in all of our relationships, there's conflict, and so we have to figure out how to work through those. I heard someone this week earlier say uh, that Jesus uh, disturbed the surface level calm to create a true peace. You know, that people can fake it on the top, but in reality underneath they're just a mess. And this helps you stop faking and really work through what's there. And so I'm looking forward to that night as well. But today we continue our sermon series in the book of James, and uh, we're picking up in chapter 3, and just to refresh your memory where we've been, chapter 1 was all about your attitude. You know, it talked about suffering and trials and temptation and all this stuff that naturally comes your way as a result of living in a world that is um, filled with sin. This misery that we experience, how do we go through it? James chapter 1 gives us very clear instructions on that. Then James chapter 2 talks about obedience and our submission to God. And now we're in chapter 3 where we uh, look at the topic of the tongue or basically that's used to describe our speech. So James chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up today. You see the sermon title in your bulletin is probably something like Taming the Tongue. And I would add to that um, the tongue is it taming the tongue? Is it a trick that we learn or is it a treat? So taming the tongue, 
trick or treat. James chapter 3. It says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he has said, then he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and itself is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James chapter 3, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we're going to look at it in three basic sections, and you'll see a slide of that up here on the board. Uh, the sections are these. They are right teaching, taming the tongue, and a sweet treat. Right teaching, taming the tongue, and a sweet treat. In a sense, what we're doing is we're sort of looking at um, the section of, really, the first part is kind of on me. It's my responsibility in my heart. And the second part is on all of us. That's taming the tongue and our responsibility to um, control our speech. And then the third section then is going to be an uh, encouragement, hopefully, for all of us as well. So right teaching, taming the tongue, and a sweet treat. Let's start with verse 1, which is right teaching. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Obviously, as a preaching and teaching pastor, this one is highly significant to me. Um, and it's, it's a deep burden that I carry on my heart. Right teaching is absolutely essential for the health of the church, the nature of the gospel, and your well-being. In fact, one commentator says it like this. He says, the quality of one's teaching and preaching matters a great deal to God. This is nothing new for the Apostle Paul gives the same command to Timothy when he's telling him, hey, how do you want to be a pastor? This is one of your primary tasks is this. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is also described, the Bible is described as the sword of the spirit, you know, so you don't grab the sword and chop somebody's head off, but at the same time, you've got to use it skillfully both to defend and to cut when needed. It's a very difficult task. 
what happens in real life is because you're a minister and everybody wants to meet with you and everybody wants to talk to you and there's lots of programs and agendas and yada, 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 a lot of times your attention to the word of God can get pushed to the side very easily if you're not disciplined and strong enough to say no. And frankly, that challenges me too because I want to shepherd you. I want to encourage you. I want to meet with you. I don't want to push you aside when you're hurting. Yet at the same time, this task actually requires time. One commentator says it again like this, too many preachers and teachers are guilty of shallowness and irreverence. They get into the pulpit and they just say, okay, well, whatever the Lord brings to my heart, that I'll say today. But in reality, God has already communicated to us. He's given us 66 books of the Bible, Old and New Testament. This is the work of the Spirit. Do you believe in the work of the Spirit? Absolutely, I believe in the Bible. <laughs> I read it, and this is His work. And this is my job to communicate it to you. When I stand before God in heaven, I don't want Him to say to me, you said I said what? <laughs> you know? You're just the messenger. Who do you think you are? You make sure you get it right. It's already written down. You communicate it accurately, and you've done your j job. You're not supposed to come up with anything new or novel or intelligent or inspiring. I've already done that. Just tell him what I said. He doesn't want me to come up with something creative. That's called heresy. He wants me to be biblical. And so when I get in this pulpit, I want to make sure that I've done my homework and got my P's and cues in order or whatever and communicate in such a way as to accurately represent what he said. And not only that, but who he is. I mean, it's a scary thing for me to get up here and say, God is like this, you know. I am telling you who God is. What if I'm wrong? <laughs> Who's going to get in trouble for that? It's probably not you. In fact, that's what the New Testament tells me. It says... Um, I'm going to skip ahead just to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. This is a slide a bit further. It says, to you all, it says it like this, obey your leaders and submit to them, which if the pastors were preaching, we would just stop there and say, hey, did you hear that, church? <laughs> but we get to read the second half of the verse, which says this to us, for they're keeping watch over your soul as what? Those who will give an account to God. Now, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. But at the end of the day, I know who my boss is. Yeah, I'm employed by the church. I get paid. You guys buy my groceries and pay the bills, and I'm thankful. But at the end of the day, I'm going to stand before the throne of God, and he's going to say, you said what? And I want to make sure I get it right. And that's a fearful and weighty thing. That is why now I'm skipping back to Timothy Paul charges Timothy like this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. says, look, I charge you in the presence of God. This is serious, Timothy. Listen to what I'm invoking. I charge you in the presence of the God who is to what? Who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. <laughs> That's a big word. Preach the word. Preach it, Timothy. Come on. That's a command. For... Be ready in season and out to... Now, again, I like to stop right there and say, Oh, good. Preach the word. That'll be fun. But you know what he follows with? The hard part that's not as fun. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. <laughs> that's not the fun part. 
And then what's even more tricky is to do so with complete patience, you know, in a nice way. And teaching for the time is coming. Now, surely you've seen this. Look at all the other pulpits across the land. There's only really a few very godly, big, orthodox, biblical churches. A lot of them are driven by this. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itching ears and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Do you see that today? There's all kinds of big churches that are popping up just like that. And that is, for me, my brothers and sisters, why I am committed to biblical expository preaching. Because that does a number of things for me. Number one, I can say, thus saith the Lord, and really feel confident in it. Because if I'm standing here and looking at the text and then saying that to you, I'm not on a hobby horse or personal dogma or whatever else. I'm just speaking the truth. And then if you get mad at me because I rebuked or exhorted or whatever, I can say, whoop, (laughs) don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) It's right here, right? I can point back exactly to where that exhortation came from. So it's a deep passion of mine, and I think it's highly important, and it should, in theory, protect me from judgment and you from error. Because I'm not up here just thinking, hey, this is what I want the church to do. Let's blah, blah, blah. Instead, I'm saying, thus saith the Lord. And then when I stand before God, I can say, okay, God, I did my best. I didn't get it all right, but I really tried to communicate your truth. And that's something I can stand on. So I can't promise you the world and I can't promise you perfection. But for my part, I can say that I will do my very best to preach to you the word of God. Amen? That's all I can give. So here, that's my charge. But then what happens in this context is today, you know, it's, it's probably a little bit different because the ministry is thought of differently now. But In first century Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those big religious guys, they were like rulers of the world, you know? This was a theocracy. This was a a divine sort of religious state. And so what happens is the religious rulers are also the rich and the powerful as well. And in context then, people who had that desire for wealth, for power, for pride, for prestige would say, hey, I want to be one of them. Now, let me just assure you, that is not the right way to go into ministry. (laughs) Take it from me. That is not the way you want to start. And James knows it. And so it's a major problem when people in this context are saying, ooh, cool, you get to wear the fancy robes, or you get to get the, you know, Dr. Honorable Reverend so-and-so title. You know, that's, by the way, one of the reasons I just say, hey, I'm Jeremy on Sunday morning. Some people are like, why not Pastor Jeremy? I'm going to be careful about this stuff because... You know, I'm happy for you to call me pastor, but I don't want to get into this ground where I'm like the Reverend Right Honorable Dr. So-and-so. That's going too far in my mind. So James is addressing that, and he's saying, hey, guys, not many of you should go for that role. It is going to be one in which you give an account, and you will be before God, and you will be in big, 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 big trouble if you've done anything other than serve him with that position. That's a dangerous and weighty spot to be in. So it's this amazing job. You know, I love it. There's the opportunity to talk about the Word of God, and you want to do so accurately. But at the same time, there's a tremendous weight that accompanies it as well. 
So it's a privilege and a responsibility. It's a blessing and a charge. It is a tricky spot. And so there's good reason for saying, hey, if you want to do this, think carefully about it before you do. So that's number one, right teaching. It is extremely important for the truth of the gospel, the well-being of the church, and your personal lives as well. Now that's my tongue. What about yours? Number two, taming the tongue. Taming the tongue. And I think James does as well as who? Who can tame the tongue? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever had a slip with a tongue? (laughs) Probably every single one of us in this room. If you have a tongue, you've probably said something wrong at some point in time. That's part of being a fallen human. Let me say that clearly, a fallen human. That is not what Christ was as an unfallen human. That is not what Adam and Eve were before the fall. And that is not what we will be after the fall. But that is what we experience now, the results of sin. So who can tame the tongue? Well, the wrong way to do it is like this, verse 6. It says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting them on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. This is what literary people call metonymy. It's a figure of speech using this metaphor to speak for an idea or concept or something. So what it's saying is that one way in which your tongue can be controlled is by the devil, by demons, by demonic forces, by evil, by hell. By hell itself can control your tongue. It's interesting too that James, the half-brother of Christ, uses this word hell If you ever do a study on the word hell in the New Testament, you'll find that the word occurs, uh, it's either 12 or 13 times, I don't remember, but I think it's 12. 11 of those are on the lips of Christ, and the only other occurrence is by his half-brother. So James uses this actual word hell and says that's what can pour forth or control your tongue. Don't go there. What's another option? Well, we can try to prevent hell from controlling our tongues ourselves. Maybe if I'm just disciplined enough, maybe if I go to enough conferences, maybe if I read enough books, maybe if I set in place a number of sort of personal disciplines and stuff like that, I'll get to where I want to be and I'll control my tongue and nothing wrong will ever come out. Well, that's an interesting proposition. What do you think of that, James? Verse 7. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed, but no human being can tame the tongue. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Doesn't sound like that's going to work. But what's interesting about this is that Augustine points out, if you look at that very carefully, what does it say? It says, no human being... In the original language, it is um, the tongue no one can tame is able of men. So no one among humanity is able to tame it. But that implies that there's probably someone outside of humanity who can. In other words, the person who made the tongue. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. He says, hey, look. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
If you're just letting it go, if you're doing nothing about it, then hell is controlling it. If you yourself are trying to control it, you're probably miserable and failing left and right. But if you allow God to control your tongue, then there's the potential for success. Well, that sounds great, Pastor Jeremy, but how is it that God can actually control my tongue? This is how he does it. He doesn't come with a bit, as James talks about with the horses, and put it on your tongue and try to swerve it to the left or the right. Instead, that, that would only be treating the symptom itself. But what God is after is not the symptom, but the cure to the disease. Here's the analogy that James uses in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? What is the source of the spring? What does that tell you about the spring? Can a fig tree bear olives? Of course not. It bears figs. Or a grapevine produce figs? Of course not. It produces grapes. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Why? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, if you want to treat the tongue, the way to fix it is by going to the source. You know, if you come out to the edge of the spring and it's salty water, you know you're in a salt water place. So wherever it's coming from is salt, right? That's the source. And you can't just take that water and change it and think that the next batch is all of a sudden going to be good and fresh. No, you have to go all the way back to the original source to treat it. And that's what James is saying here. Look, it's a worthless battle to sit here and try to control your speech. What you have to go after is your heart. Go after the heart. Earlier in the book, the way he said it is he used the, um, the imagery of impregnation and implantation. And we talked a little bit about when the word of God is firmly implanted into your heart, then it takes root and it bears fruit. So in other words, what I'm saying to you this morning is what's said all throughout scripture is this in Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow, oh look, there's our analogy, the springs of life. There's that water theme, there's the spring, there's the source of goodness. In order for your tongue to be right, your heart needs to be right. If your heart's wrong, guess what's going to come out? You can try to stuff it, but eventually it's going to pour forth. Bad speech indicates a bad heart. So how do I guard my heart, Pastor Jeremy? Well, Psalm 119 asks the same question. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, ah, there it is, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? So that I can control my tongue. That I may not sin against you. How do you control the tongue? Well, First Peter tells us, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and, oh, slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the way in which James is saying to control your tongue is actually to go after your heart. How do you go after your heart? You get in the word and you let the spirit do its work and it changes you. And then as it does so, good things begin to come forth. So 
James gives you a few more specifics on that. For example, one thing he talked about earlier is looking in the mirror. You know, he said, examine yourself. You're about to go rebuke somebody else. And just like Jesus, he says, hey, you want to make sure you've taken the speck or the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's. So again, you go back to the word and you read the Bible and you say, God, is there something you want to convict me of before I talk to this person? Because I know I'm supposed to preach the word and I know I'm supposed to rebuke and exhort and encourage. But before I do so, show me anything in me that needs to change first. So you start... First of all, you say, okay, I'm going after the heart. Now I'm going to the word. Now I'm going to take a step back and examine myself. This is why James in the first chapter says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. You're not asking for wisdom necessarily to win or even fix that person. You're asking for wisdom to fix yourself. Because it's really easy to see the faults in others, but it takes a lot of wisdom to see the faults in yourself. That's where it's hard. So you've lived with yourself forever and you've kind of forgotten that you're like that and you learn how to avoid it. But in reality, you are and you've never dealt with it and you probably need to. So ask for wisdom. Ask for clarity. Ask God to help you see. Lord, help me to see. I don't want somebody else to have to point it out to me. Right? Let me see this and let me work on it before it becomes a real problem. And if it is, God, point it out because your discipline is good. You're a loving father and if you have to spank me, go for it. I don't know, Lord. Fix it. Help. So, guard your tongue by going after your heart, by looking in the Word. Take a step back. Look in the mirror. And then here's one more uh, little acronym for you. This is sort of a behavioral therapy thing, but it can help, I think. And it is this. It's to stop and think. And the word think just stands for the acronym um, truth Helpful, inspiring, necessary, and kind. So as you're examining yourself and you're about to say something to somebody else and you've gone to the word and you've checked your heart and now you're into this place where you think, okay, it's the right time to speak. You need to ask these questions and say, number one, is it truthful? Is what I'm about to say, the whole story is only part of the story. Is it my side and not their side or what's the deal? Is it truthful? Secondly, you need to say, is it helpful? You know, am I really trying to help this person? Will this benefit them? Or am I just cutting them down to make me look bigger? Is it helpful? Is it lifting them up? Even at my own expense, will this lift them up? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Does it motivate them? After we're done, are they like discouraged and want to just drop their tail between their legs? Or do they want to run out and improve and fix this? Is it necessary? And that's a big one, right? That's hard because sometimes you're like, eh, should I let it go or should I not? Should I say something? Should I not? And really time will answer that question for you because you're looking at it saying, okay, if I forget about it after a day, probably no big deal. Two days, nah, three days. But if you're going like a week or two weeks and you haven't stopped thinking about it, you're still bothered by it, yeah, then it's probably necessary even for you to be able to communicate. Is it necessary? And finally, is it kind? Is it kind? Let me put this in terms that the little guys will understand. At our house, we definitely struggle with kind words and things we say. And so on occasion, we'll use different incentives. You know, we, we don't want to grow up just bribing our kids <laughs> for everything. But on occasion, we'll say, okay, this week is jelly bean week. 
And for every nice thing you say, a jelly bean goes into the jar. Every bad thing you say, a jelly bean comes out of the jar. So let me apply that to you, church. Let's say this is $10 a week. All right? Every nice thing you say, 10 bucks goes into your jar. Every bad thing you say, 5 bucks comes out. At the end of the week, would you be rich or poor? Are you making money or are you losing money? And I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt of the 10 and 5. And I'm asking you, in your marriage, in your children, your relationships, what are you, rich or poor? Are you motivated? <laughs> you would be for real if I could actually do that. Think about it this week. Perhaps, <coughs> excuse me, you want to keep your own chart. I don't know. Better, Proverbs says like this, is an open... There's no water here today. <laughs> All right. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Don't just kiss and pretend and make nice. Be honest. Deal with it. Work through it. And do so in a truthful and helpful and inspiring and what was in necessary and kind way. Thank you. Finally, number three, a sweet treat. So number one was basically preach the word or you know what, the importance of teaching. Thank you. Number two was how to tame the tongue. Number three is a sweet treat. This is a really, really neat, neat uh, piece of work that James does in verses 7 through 12. I think a lot of times when we read it, uh, we just read over it, and uh, all we hear is the negative. We're like, boy, the tongue is just horrible. But let me ask you this question. Who made the tongue? <laughs> God, right? And everything God made was good. So at one point, the tongue was good, but if controlled by hell, or if modified by us, it's no good. And that's the point he's making, is he, if, if hell is controlling this, of course. If you're trying to control it, it's a failure. But when controlled by God, there is redemptive purposes for the tongue, just like there's redemptive purposes for me and you. So let me show, that, show you that, because this is absolute beautiful artistry that the apostle does in the following verses. He does so through two illusions that really make this redemption theme pop. And the first is this. He's, what he's going to do is he's going to oscillate back and forth. He's going to talk about the tongue, and then he's going to give you some literary hints to bring you back to another time. Okay? So, here's the tongue. Chapter 3, verse 7. He says, now listen carefully to this. Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed or have dominion and has been tamed by mankind. Can you think of another place in scripture where you've heard stuff like that? Hmm? Yes, exactly right. Genesis and the creation account, right? Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We'll have a slide of it here up on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 said, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion that is tame 
or rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and <coughs> over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what theologians call the original creative mandate. When God says, you are put here on this planet for a purpose to rule over it and be my vice regents made in my image for my glory. That's why you're here. Obey me, love me, serve me, make me look good, and you will have a great time. That's why you're here. Rule the earth, fill it, subdue it. All the creatures are yours, everything. Go for it. And what happens here then is that the James mandate reminds us of the Genesis mandate. James is telling us to rule over our tongue and control it. And Genesis is telling us to rule over the earth. So the first illusion goes back to Genesis. Now let's see where the second illusion goes as well. This is James chapter 3 verse 11. Talking about the tongue. Remember there's the tongue and then there's the word picture. James says this. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Now this week if you uh, happen to use social media... If you do, that's fine, and if you don't, that's fine too. But if you happen to, you may have seen on my Facebook page this image. Here it is. <laughs> there it is. Does anybody know what this is? I have a room full of chemists here, so I thought somebody has got to get this. Who knows? What is it? It's glucose. Very good. Very good. That's Quick chemistry for you. Nicely done, George. Um, we, this is the chemical formula for glucose as it's said in English. And if we go back to James chapter 3, what you'll find is actually kind of a neat thing. Uh, this is where I get number 3. This is the creative aspect of the sermon outline. Uh, sweet treat. Um, the word here in the original language in James chapter 3 verse 11 says, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water. Guess what? The original Greek word for fresh is there. Glucose, exactly right. It carries with it the idea or the imagery of that which is sweet pouring forth. You know how it is. I'm sure you've tasted bitter something before and sweet something else. You're hot, you're thirsty, you're tired, you get the right thing and you're like, whoa, boy, did that hit the spot. That was so sweet. It was fresh. It's used of wine and other places in the Bible. And the idea is, is what James is trying to do is connect this pouring forth from the heart to the source of life. So are there other places in scripture in which water is seen as the source of life? Yes, that's good, but you're jumping ahead. So that's the next one. Shh. Let's go back to Genesis again. Chapter 2, verse 8, it says this. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And chapter, verse 10 says, A river 
flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. It's providing you this picture of the beautiful imagery of this incredibly fruitful life that is all supplied by this one source, this spring of living water. So as you follow that theme, you can actually watch that redemptive theme play out through all of Scripture. Garden of Eden, you have the river of life. In Christ, John chapter, nine, chapter 4, verse 9, guess what it says of him? That he who comes to me will never be thirsty again, and of, you know, from their soul will gush forth streams of living water. And then if you follow it, so you went from Genesis to Jesus. Now go to Revelation and look what you find. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. It says this. Wow. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. The river of life. The river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river. Oh, there's the tree again, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in every month. And what do we do with that? Well, the leaves of the tree were used for the healing of the nations. Here is the redemptive theme. God made everything even your tongue. And although so many times it's used for evil and it can be controlled by the devil and it can't be controlled by you, when controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, planted in the word, then all of a sudden it'll gush forth streams of living water and speak life. And then like everything else in creation, God will see that tongue and see everything that he has made and say, wow, that's good. That's good. Even your tongue, even your tongue, which can be used as a weapon of mass destruction like water, can be a flood, can do horrible things. Or, when redeemed by the grace of God, the victory and obedience of Christ, and placed in submission to the Holy Spirit and his word, then your tongue can actually be a source of life. I tell you the truth, if these stones were, if these were silent, even the very stones would cry out. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be not silent. Don't be quiet. But instead, use your tongues to bless God and build up your fellow man. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Everything you do is right and true and just. Case in point, the tongue. You made it for your praise and for your honor and for your glory, and we use it to destroy our brothers. What a waste. Exact opposite of what you intended. But God, we pray that as you redeem us, you would redeem our tongues as well. Help us to be rooted and saturated and overflowing with your words so that when our words spring forth, you will produce life. God, may your rivers of love and justice and mercy be at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.